The following podcast originally aired on 91.7 FM Madison on October 3rd, 2023. This is Radio Resistance. Hi everyone, you're tuned into WSUM 91.7 FM Madison, Wisconsin, and you're now listening to Radio Resistance. I'm your host, Surya Veer, aka DJ Sunray. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the program, Radio Resistance is a culture and art show where we touch on a new city, country, or region each week. Throughout our journey, in each episode, we'll share some interesting history, listen to some amazing music, share some fun facts, tell incredible stories, chat with friends, and much, much more. The common theme embedded into this radio show is, you guessed it, resistance. Our mission is to highlight stories and struggles that have taken place elsewhere to inspire all of us listening at home, while also introducing you to some unique music you may have never heard before. So, the title of today's episode is TNT and the Guyanas, Atlantic Indians. Now, I know what you're thinking, TNT and the Guyanas... That sounds like some sort of failed 90s rap group. And what on earth is Atlantic Indians? A play on ATLians? Who do these guys think they are? Outcast or something? Alright, relax, relax. Let me explain. The TNT and the Guyanas that I'm referring to are Trinidad and Tobago, Guyana, and Suriname, which are all countries located on the tropical northeastern shoulder of South America, just north of Brazil and just east of Venezuela. And the Atlantic Indians I mentioned refer to the large groups of people from the Indian subcontinent who make up a plurality of the population in each of these respective countries. Now, what a plurality of the population means is that in a country where there are enough groups where none of them can form a 50% majority, a plurality is whichever group that forms the highest percentage of said population. So I get a lot of you are probably still wondering, how did so many Indians randomly end up on the beachy coasts of South America? Do they forget to buy a return ticket or something? Well, not quite. But don't fret, because on this week's episode of Radio Resistance, we're going to be talking all about the Indian diaspora in this region, from the history of its development to how it has evolved and stood out culturally over time. Stay tuned, as later in the show, we have a very exciting guest to talk to us all about TNT, the Guyanas, and the Atlantic Indians. And for those who may not have heard, you are listening to Radio Resistance on WSUM 91.7 FM, Madison. get into it. Indo-Caribbeans, as they are often called, are people who reside in the Caribbean who are descendants of Jihaji indentured laborers from the Indian subcontinent. Often also referred to as Girmithias, these indentured servants were brought to the colonial territories of the British, Dutch, and French starting in the mid-19th century all the way until the 1920s. Guyana and Trinidad were former British colonies, whereas Suriname was a former Dutch colony. The French colonies of French Guyana, Guadalupe, and Martinique still remain under French colonial rule, 
and they never saw as many shipments as the other colonies, so populations of Indians in these territories are far less in number in comparison to aforementioned countries. So, who were these indentured laborers, and why were they brought to the Caribbean and South America? Well, it started with the British orchestrating the process of abolishing slavery in their colonies through the 1833 Slavery Abolition Act. This was followed by the French, and then the Dutch, also abolishing slavery in their colonies in the following decades. This was great, but it also meant that the sugar plantations that had taken over the colonies, making colonizers rich, were going unmanned and unworked. The abolition of slavery caused a massive labor shortage that gave way to Indian migration across the Atlantic Ocean. The extremely poor economic conditions of many mostly low-caste people living in colonial India led them to search for other work. The British and Dutch pounced upon this opportunity to fill the void of a low-wage labor force. These laborers would sign shoddy five-year labor contracts where they could pay for a trip home after their tenure, or they could earn an entire year's salary for signing another contract. The first ship-carrying Indians set sail on the 13th of January in 1838 from the eastern coast of India in Calcutta towards British Guyana, where it arrived on the 5th of May. In the early decades of work on the sugarcane plantations, conditions for indentured Indian workers were awful, due mostly to the lack of provision of proper care by planters. Indians were confined to their residences and paid a salary that could hardly sustain them. Much of this points to the deceptive nature of the recruitment process employed by colonial powers. Many of these workers in India lived very far from the seaports that they would be shipped off from. They weren't told what kind of work they were being offered. Oftentimes, they weren't even told that they were going to be taken away from their homeland and families, and the conditions that they saw once they arrived were bleak. Charles Anderson was a special magistrate in charge of the investigation on these plantations, and when he wrote back to the colonial secretary in England, he described how harsh the conditions Indian workers were faced with, and how the decaying remains of sugarcane workers were frequently discovered in the fields they tilled. Indians in the indentured servitude system were severely overworked and were not paid or fed by the planters whenever they refused to work. What you just heard was part of a project that is working to preserve the legacy of Bhojpuri folk music as many of the people who were brought over from India were from the northeastern part of the country where this language is spoken. This particular song, sung by Gopal Moria, tells the story of how Indian workers were deceived and taken away from their homes to be exploited and overworked. Workers were taken from all over India. Other groups were from the southern states like Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh, while a small minority population also came from what is now present-day Pakistan and Bangladesh. I'd like to expand on this to give you all more background on the demographic makeup of the people who were brought over from India. Of the nearly 2 million people who were brought from India to the Caribbean, 
It is estimated that 80% were Hindu, 14% were Muslim, and 6% were other religious minorities. It is critically important to understand that of the people who made up the Hindu sect of this group, an approximate 70% were low caste. The caste system in India is a deeply entrenched social hierarchy that categorizes individuals into distinct groups based on their birth, occupation, and social status. At the top of the hierarchy are the Brahmins, who are traditionally priests and scholars, followed by Kshatriyas, the warrior and ruler class, Vaishyas, merchants and farmers, and Shudras, laborers and service providers. Below these four main Varnas, or castes, lie numerous subcastes and Dalits, who are historically considered as the lowest in the hierarchy and often subjected to discrimination. Dalits were not even brought over to the Caribbean because they were considered too low caste to be transported away from India. Even though the caste system is technically outlawed, it still holds massive bearing and implications in Indian society today. What is interesting about the indentured service system, however, and the migration of Indians across the Atlantic, is that caste did not survive the treacherous journey across the seas. One of the many reasons it did not is because the crossing of the seas constituted a violation of community caste rules. Likewise, when indentured servants came over to the Americas, they all found themselves unified in poverty and struggle, where they all faced similar conditions which made caste much less of a concern. One interesting thing that did occur with the caste system was a sort of flip, where the menial labor caste actually became more respected by colonial authority due to their ability to adequately provide labor, whereas the higher caste that sought a more spiritual role were not appreciated by the British and Dutch plantation owners. They still did have to contend with the racial hierarchies that existed on the islands, the abolition of slavery in the colonies led to African ex-slaves being offered extremely low wages to continue working in sugar plantations. They did not want to work for such wages, which led to the influx of Indian migration into the colonies. A new sort of caste system formed that was distinctly Caribbean, but was instead based more in color rather than a familial distinction like the Indian caste system. Indian women in the Caribbean were originally very few in number, as it was difficult for them to be recruited. For men, it was socially acceptable to leave India to find work, but for women, it was frowned upon, and the process of migrating often involved invasive and violating medical examinations that were administered upon arrival in the Caribbean. Likewise, colonial powers initially did not want Indians to settle there. They viewed the indentured servitude system as a cheap and temporary replacement for the slave labor that they had lost. The late 1800s saw change in this attitude, as the European beet sugar industry started competing with Caribbean sugar producers. Planters wanted to retain their domination over the international sugar industry, so they increased efforts to retain Indian worker populations, which also cut costs required to bring laborers back to India after their contracts had expired. In 1870, a quota called for 40 Indian women for every 100 Indian men. This quota was never entirely met successfully, but it did lead to Indian women becoming increasingly recruited to immigrate across the Atlantic. These women ranged from wide backgrounds. Many were married and joining their husbands. Others were widows. Some were trying to escape poverty by working in the plantations, and some were prostitutes. The women who did work in the sugarcane fields were always paid less than men, and sometimes subjugated to worse working conditions. Intermarriage between Indians and Africans rarely took place. Due to the unbalanced ratio of men to women, however, women would often commingle with multiple men in a sort of polygamous fashion, which actually led to them having more social leverage and arguably an increased status in society. 
An interesting aspect of Indian migration to the Caribbeans was that although the caste system and language hardly survived, many traditions and cultural practices did. The massive color festival of Holi is still practiced today throughout Guyana, Suriname, and Trinidad. And Hindu temples and Muslim mosques hold prayers daily for worshippers who are the descendants of indentured servants. People in the area now watch Bollywood movies that have been culturally exported to the area, even though a vast majority of people no longer speak Hindi or Urdu. Music is another example where Indian culture has retained a great deal of influence in the region. We'll dive further into this next week, but to give you a little taste, we'll play a song from one of Trinidad's icons who spearheaded the genre called chutney music. Here's Don't Fall in Love by Sundar Popo. Every other week, we try to bring in a guest to give us more insight on the topic of the day's episode. Today's guest is Dr. Lomar Rupnarin, who is a history professor at Jackson State University. Dr. Rupnarin's field of study is interdisciplinary, drawing on methods and concepts in history, sociology, economics, and environmental science to understand labor migration, resistance, human rights, and identity, as well as environmental policy challenges in the Caribbean. For the past 15 years, his research has focused on the movement of Asian contract workers to the Caribbean and their plantation experiences with regard to their adaptation to structural dominance. Now, I'll step away for a second and let you introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, I should add to the introduction of Mr. Beer that I, I was born in Guyana, mm-hmm. a country in the southeastern um, shoal of South, um, South America. And I am a descendant of indentured laborers who were brought uh, from India to work on the sugar, Caribbean sugar plantations following abol- abolition of slavery in the middle of the 19th century. Um, so my parents really worked in sugar plantations. And then in the early 80s, I um, eventually emigrated to the United States where I worked first as an immigrant. And later on, I attended college and so on. And um, I eventually um, earn, so to speak, a, a doctorate um, in Latin American Caribbean Studies at the State University of New York at Albany. I um, also taught at the University of Virgin Islands, the St. Croix campus, and I left there about um, a decade ago. I'm here now at Jackson State University, at HBCU in um, Jackson, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So if you want, we can we can get into into questions right away. All right. So before we get into our discussion, I have a question that's been nagging me throughout my research for this episode. There doesn't seem to be a concrete term for the regions inhabited by Indo-Caribbeans. Do you think that an adequate distinction exists, such as the Guianas, the Guyanas, or do you think that the diaspora spreads far enough to make the distinction too difficult to assert? That's a really interesting question. Um, In order to understand that question, I think I need to um, give some background of the Indian indigenous experience or the Indian experience in the Caribbean. As I said earlier, um, after the abolition of slavery, an estimated 500,000 Indians were brought to the Caribbean from 1838 to 1920 to work at the plantations. About a third 
went back, 175,000, and another 375,000 settled after the contract expired. And so the idea of identity that emerged um, in terms of labeling um, emerged from this migratory experience. For a long time, Indians in the Caribbean were seen as transient laborers or, or settlers, not really citizens. So by the 1960s, as these countries, Guyana, Suriname, and Trinidad, home to a majority of the Indians in the Caribbean, have achieved an independence from, from, from Britain and, and Holland, respectively, they started to sort out uh, a sort of national identity or national uh, discourse for all these different ethnic groups that were living in these countries. And so the idea was to call Indians, um, Guyanese, in the Guyanese context, in, in, in Suriname, um, Surinamese, as opposed to Indo-Surinamese or Indo-Guyanese. The, the idea of calling Indians Indo-Guyanese in Guyana really underlines the concept of combining um, ethnicity with nationality. Uh, mainly because Indians did not really want to give up that connection to India. Mainly over time, there's been a sort of a, a growing distance between the Indians in the Caribbean and Indians in India, mainly because Indians have you know, moved on in a different environment. Uh, in terms of who they are or who they have become. So Indo-Caribbean then is sort of a hyphenated identity that combines the, the, the geographical space with um, cultural identity. Um, but however, it, it is a sort of a not to clear identity uh, because Indians have now migrated to other areas of the world, particularly in the United States, Queens, New York, but also outmigrated to to Holland in the case of the Surinamese and also to Britain. Mm -hmm. So how does one uh, define these Indians who have been migrated um, ever since the 1970s? Well yeah, they yeah. have a lot of become a lot of become Americanized, a lot of retained their homeland culture with the Caribbean as well as in India. So, so the identity and the labeling are, have become very complex. And um, I think that the, um, we should move on and um, label these Indians as Atlantic Indians, mainly because that will cover the migratory pattern, the new sort of way of life, um, combining the past without discussing the past. So, you know, uh, it's a very, very difficult question to answer head on. Mm -hmm. um, because um, the, the point is, uh, where immigrant group, group are concerned, when, when does it stop or when does it cease or when they cease to become immigrants and then citizens? Like, for example, in the United States, we do not say um, white Americans, we say white Americans because they've lived in the United States for so long that they become Americans. The case of Indians in the Caribbean, they are not Caribbean, they're like Indian Caribbean. Mm 
I had this conversation in, in Fiji last May when I was there at a conference. The idea of when does an immigrant group become citizens? Yeah, when do yeah. they become nationalized, sort of? Yeah. Of nationals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that has been the dynamics of Indians and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. In, in, in certain countries, they're still battling to be nationalist or, or being the national uh, imagination, the national discourse, mainly because it tends to straddle uh, multiple identities, one from India, in the Caribbean itself, across the Caribbean, and as well as in the developed world, in the case yeah. of the United States. Of course. Yeah, so you posit the term Atlantic Indians to describe this group, and obviously it's all these people who call the Americas their home. You talked a little bit about this classification and why it matters. Do you Can you tell us more about why perhaps it should be adopted and perhaps how far it can extend as well? Because, I mean, Indians living in the U.S., would you also consider them as, as Atlantic Indians in this sense? Which does it have to yeah. do with the specific migratory patterns that, that exist with Indo-Caribbeans? Yeah, it, it, it's a label that will depart from the static view of them being migrants who came through the indenture period from India to the Caribbean and settled. Yes, that it happened. But I think their sense of identity, the sense of who they are, has, has evolved over time that we have to now capture that, that movement, that migratory slash identity movement. I think, as I said, um, the, the migration has allowed me to come up with that label because they have migrated out of the Caribbean um, and entered the United States, for example, but they have not dismissed both regions. In fact, they have a sort of elastic relationship where they um, straddle together. And so the word Atlantic really covers the Atlantic coast of the United States, where Mm -hmm. many Indians have settled, but also England, um, European countries. Mm -hmm. And um, really, I'm drawing upon um, writings that look at the African experience, like the Black Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to now look at the brown Atlantic, you have the white Atlantic. Yeah. So, so the brown Atlantic is is in the making. Is is taking some time. And a PhD student, sometime back, but ten years ago, uh, talked to me about this brown Atlantic. I think her name is Debbie. We lost contact. And um, she was developing that. And I thought, um, in that dialogue, I thought of you know maybe this Atlantic theory should be um, applied to Indians as well. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely very interesting and very important, um, these these sort of designations. So moving forward with just the sort of diversity that exists in, in this area of the Caribbean, something that's really important and something we find very interesting on the show is creolization. And can you tell us about how creolization has taken place in the Guyanas through language, food, and just culture at large? Creolization is a rather fascinating concept or process. Uh, it is um, whereby Caribbean people, mainly Africans, intended of slaves in the Caribbean, have adopted European ways, mannerisms, education, institutions, as well as African, as in African, and combine them to form something new, a sort of hybrid sort of process, something new that is not totally European, not totally African, but new in a sense is indigenous to the 
to the Caribbean. For example, if you look at an African person in the Caribbean, they look African, and they dress European, and they dress African, it might have gone through the Western-oriented educational system. But when the person speaks, he speaks Caribbean, he may speak a Patois, or they mm-hmm. speak um, various dialects. And that is really, or in religion, you have Shango, or you have Voodoo, or you have Santeria in Cuba, where, where you have the mixing of European religious beliefs with African to form something new, something indigenous to the Caribbean, that is not predominantly European or African, even though it, it, it may appear more so on the Black side, the African side. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, the fact that many people who practice curialization, live by uh, the idea of curialization, are African, really. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixing process um, in language, it's a mixing in culture, like education, um, in various institutions, but it's also mixing in food. You have various forms of food that is a representative of, of creolization. For example, there's a food in Guyana called all-in-one or cook, uh-huh. where all these different ingredients are put into a pot of cook, and, and it comes to a point where it, it, it's you do not see the, the various differences. It's all boiled into one. It's, it's, it's sort of like a melting pot, but it's not yeah. exactly like that. Uh, and that's, but, that's a rice dish, correct? Yes, yeah, it's, yeah. it's okay. the main part of it is rice and then coconut milk and various sort of vegetables. And then most likely it's not the best part of the meat, maybe, you know, chicken wings or the leg part of a goat or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's all cooked in together. It's really a poor man's dish because you can take so many things around you and, and create a, a very yeah, Creole dish. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea of creolization is an ongoing identity in the Caribbean. And again, it's it's really the mixing of diff- very different forms culturally, um, socially, and even politically. You know, one of the things of the Caribbean is that it, it is a home of so many different people, diverse people. You have Europeans, you have Africans, you have Chinese, you have Indians, you have Amerindians, you have Japanese. All of this, for example, live mm-hmm. in, in one space in Suriname. So racial mixing, cultural mixing uh, do happen and happen at a wider scale, at least would compare to the United States. Mm-hmm. But what's so interesting of all, all of this, where religious tolerance is concerned, you may have a mosque beside a Hindu temple or yeah. beside a Christian church, and there's no problem, none whatsoever. Yeah. That doesn't happen in places like where you have religious tensions in certain parts of India or certain parts of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And so these Caribbean countries were, have been able to bring these different cultural differences to, to, to a point where there's a lot of acceptance. And I think creolization helps with that. You, you yeah, know, you just yeah. can't, you can't live in, in a Caribbean country. Say you can't live in, in Guyana and not know about Africa or Africans. Or an African does not know about Indians. It's not possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, you, but you, let, let me mm-hmm. no, let, no, me, add, let me add one one thing. Creolization, however, in the context of this conversation, came under a challenge by Indian people, and one reason for that is that Indians have not been creolized according to what I just said, according to Euro 
African style. Indians have been creolized to some extent, but they creolized in, in accordance or in tandem with India. In other words, they combine Hinduism with the Creole or the Caribbean way of life. That is not like the, the African European realization. It's, it's very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. For example, you may have an Indian person who went to law school, okay, and the person becomes a judge. Then on a Sunday, well, say on a Friday, he sits as a judge, a magistrate in a court of law, a Western court of law. On a Sunday, he attends a Hindu temple or mandir and practices his religion. So what he has done there is the mixing of two different cultures. But if you've noticed, I've not mentioned the African side or the European side in that process. Mm -hmm. Yes, it happens, but it is not at the forefront. It's at the core of this cultural mixing. Mm -hmm. And so Indians then see creolization in a different form. And then they do not accept it to a point where they think that to accept say the Euro-African form of creolization, Indian thought that deny that will deny them with their ancestral connection from India. Yeah. I know it gets a little bit complex. So those are some of the criticisms, but generally speaking, they, they're not in contention with each other. So you have two sort of creolization process. And one can apply this to the Chinese as well. Even though a lot of them have become Christians, they have lost that Confucius sort of identity with a lot of Chinese characteristics of, of, of their civilization going back for centuries. Mm -hmm. As they got into the Caribbean, they become Christianized. That's not the case with, with Indians. In Guyana in particular, they, they, maintain a, uh, they have maintained a sort of an elastic form of Hinduism that does not have the sort of caste elements in it. Yeah, yeah. But even that, in its sense, can become sort of a creolization because the Hindu temple in Guyana is, I'm sure, not not entirely reminiscent of what it what a Hindu temple in in India would look like at all. It's changed over the years. Not at all. Not at all. In fact, a lot of Indians in Guyana do not speak Hindi, mm -hmm. but the the pandit or the priest will deliver the 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 readings in Hindi. It's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And people just take it in. Like I don't yeah. speak. Yeah, it's interesting because if I if I go to the temple, I mean, most of the processions are in in Hindi or Sanskrit, which Hindi I understand at least partially, but the Sanskrit part just goes over my head. But you can still appreciate the sense of community and the traditions that it offers. Yeah, yeah, and also the um, Indians in the Caribbean will listen to Bollywood music. Mm -hmm and watch Bollywood films, but they do not speak the language. They will dance to the Bollywood music without understanding the, the meaning of the words. And so it's a funny story with one young Indian boy, a guy, uh, they normally when they uh, put over the dead news, they, they will play a sort of sad melody in Hindi, mm -hmm. the Indian community is concerned. And so he, he danced to the, to the melody, not thinking <laughs> this is a sad occasion. Yeah, because he, he didn't understand. He didn't understand the Hindi melody, so they gave him a nickname. They call him Dead News because of this <laughs> <laughs> sort of funny story. Yeah. So those are some of the things that um, some of the songs are very emotional, and people laugh yeah. because they don't understand the you know the, the meaning of the words. But overall, it's a very interesting cultural process. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely.
So to give you listeners at home a feel for music that might be played at a Guyanese wedding, we'll take a quick break to play you Pardesi by Daka Dale. All right, everyone, welcome back. So to talk more about about culture and racial diversity, we know that um, the Guyanas, Suriname, French Guyana, Guyana included, are some of the most racially diverse places on the planet. So given the complex history of race in the area, can you tell us about how that racial and cultural climate has changed to become what it is today? Yeah, the French Guyana is somewhat kind of odd in terms of the diversity and they're still on a colonial rule from France. And um, because of that, Indians in this case do not migrate to French Guyana because of their visa restrictions. And so there's, there has not been a meaningful connection with Indians from Suriname and Guyana to, to French Guyana. However, there's a meaningful contact between Indians in Trinidad, for example, with, with Guyana and um, Suriname. Now, there always have been tensions between Africans and Indians in, in Guyana and Trinidad and Suriname, going back to the days of indenture, mainly because after the abolition of slavery, the planters class opted to bring in foreign labor as opposed to work with the existing African labor force and give them what they were asking for. So as Indians were brought in, Africans saw them as impinging upon their rights. Mm-hmm. As as you know, being there for a long time, and this is the time they should have bargained for better wages and so forth. So immigration of Indians were seen as very anti. And one can think of this, say, for example, in California with the, with the coming of Mexicans to work and so forth. There has always been this idea that the Mexicans are coming to take over jobs. The similar sort of sentiment was expressed soon after emancipation. And on top of that, the planters class used one group against the other so that they could be secure. So they, they, if both groups are in each other's space or they were at loggerheads, then the planters class can at least be in a safe place. They're not totally involved in this. Mm-hmm. The concept of divide and rule. Divide and conquer, yeah. yeah. Yes. And we That's see it in, in colonial territories all over the place, definitely. Yes, yeah. yes. And so after a while, these stereotypes developed. You know, one group is lazy, one group is um is stingy, and there's a lot of distrust, on which many really were ill-founded. But the perception survived to the contemporary mm-hmm. period. Now... When Guyana got independence or received independence, there was one uh, political party, what's called a People Progressive Party, 
and were headed by an Indian leader, Chedi Jagan, and an African leader, Folks Burnham. And the idea is that to bring these two ethnic groups through these two leaders, and then they will then challenge the British government and eventually gain independence. That was the idea. So Africans and Indians, after being for centuries um, not together, now what came together is based on political mobilization, so they mm-hmm. can achieve independence in a uniform sense. What happened next? Uh, was a, really a tragedy, really. In the 1950s, the PPP government was pushing towards communism or socialism, which is against British rule and against US rule. And as, as you, uh, you're a student of Latin American um, studies, you know that, that Allende in Chile mm-hmm. was a victim of this poor war politics. Yeah. And, and, and then Cuba came in to feel, feel Castro came into power in 1959 by a revolution. Just before that, Guyana was moving, according to the U.S. government and British government, to a leftist government. And so that had to be killed or or Mm -hmm. contained, something of that sort. And so what happened? The PPP split with the help of the United States, Britain. So the Africans then lead to the African leader, Hoax Burnham, and then the Indians lead to Chet Jagan. Mm-hmm. So the PPP remained on the Chedi Jagan and the PNC, the People's National Congress, on the folks burning. So they went to the polls against each other. Yeah. And that, that division and still exists now in, in Guyana. It still exists. Mm-hmm. And so the, the U.S. government sided with folks burning because mm-hmm. folks burning was, was not clear in what direction he was going and certainly not to socialism. The mm-hmm. Indian leader, Chedi Jagan, said he's communist. He's socialist. And so that excluded him. So the U.S. government with the British government then helped Folks Burnham get into power and achieve independence. Mm-hmm. Once Folks Burnham got into power, he created dictatorship for another 30 years, uh, 28 years. And so that excluded Indians from power. Mm-hmm. And so in 1992, the Indian government, Chedi Jagan, were able to come back into power through the polls. Folks Burnham, through the PNC rule, had rigged all elections. Mm-hmm. And so after the collapse of the Cold War in 1989, then the United States then came back on board, so, so to speak, and told the PNC government, you guys have to hold free elections. When the free elections came, it was fair. The Indian government got into power because of the majority of Indians in Guyana. You see, these ethnic groups vote along ethnic lines mm-hmm. as opposed to both along policies and the virtue of the fact that Indians are a majority they want they got into power in the meantime during the 30 years of dictatorship about a hundred thousand Indians left Guyana for Canada and the United States so those are the, the tension still goes on between Indians and Africans and it happens more so during election time when both ethnic groups jockey for power yeah, that's reality. Sad. Yeah. Well, to, to conclude, one thing I always ask my guests, and I think this is one of the most important questions, but I, I love to always hear this opinion. But what is one thing that you would like for all of our listeners to know about the country of Guyana? It is a very interesting question, and it's also a timing one. And here is why. Guyana, through ExxonMobil, has discovered oil in 2015 and if you google guyana now 
from 2015 to now, right now even, you will see headlines all over the world saying that Guyana will become one of the richest countries in the world, not to mention in the Caribbean and Latin America. Guyana will be producing 1 billion barrels of oil, 1 billion barrels of oil. It will become the fourth largest, the third largest oil producing country in the world. Mind you, the Guyana only has 750,000 people, and Guyana is the third poorest country in the Americas. Haiti is the first poorest, and the second is Nicaragua. Guyana is there. So this is like a rag to rich sort of story. It's mm -hmm. almost a miraculous Now, maybe I can come on the show some other time to talk about how this all gonna pan out, the profits mm -hmm. of this. So far, it's going okay. A lot of people are saying that Guyana will experience what is called a resource curse or a Dutch disease, like places like Ghana mm -hmm. or other countries in Africa. They will misuse the funds of oil and the country will remain like other developing countries. And that's a good argument because if you look at the world that has found oil and have gained a lot of wealth, the population, status of the population has not been transformed. Mm -hmm. People are still living badly, poorly, with poor health care, poor education. These countries experience corruption, mm -hmm. migration, and all of that. Now, if Guyana could pull it off, it would become the one of the richest well, high-income country in the world. What does that mean in terms of a conversation with the ethnic groups? It, mean, it means that right now, the ethnic groups are living, uh, gosh, they probably make, what, four or 5,000 U.S. per year, mm -hmm. an average worker. It, mean, it means that they, their lifestyle will be so high, so high, that it be compared to the United States. And not only that, the, the people who have left might come back, Guyanese, mainly because the country right now does not have the skills to deal with the complexities of this oil industry. Mm -hmm. They are right now, they're looking for 100,000 jobs in the area of skills, in other areas. Guyana doesn't have that. Yeah. So all of that could have transformed the country in ways never seen before. Mm -hmm. um, but where, how much Guyana is receiving in terms of money and royalty, and how much ExxonMobil are receiving, it's a story by itself. Mm -hmm. Most multinational corporations in the world tend to take the chunk of the profits. Okay? Definitely. So Guyana is no, no different. I mean, I just I finished that, I wrote an article on this. And actually, I'll be presenting it at Park University in Rochester, Massachusetts, in the um, in the spring. I'm continue writing about the, this this oil industry, oil and gas, and mm -hmm. I'm continue to do so uh, for the next probably ten years. I, I just want to figure out to see what this country is doing in terms of you know developing Guyana with this wealth and its relationship with ExxonMobil. So that is one of the good news of Guyana. It's, it's almost a miraculous story. It mm -hmm. happens probably once in every 500 years. There isn't a country for the last 30 years or 40 or 50 years that has discovered so much oil and gas that will sustain it for another, another 75 years. Yeah. That's just the story of the world. So that's what I want to share with your listeners. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very important development 
that's happening currently in, in Guyana. And we'll touch more on it a little bit later in the episode when we talk about the Greater Guyana Initiative. But for now, thanks once again for sharing your experience and insight with us, Dr. Rupnarine. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, thank you for reaching out to me. I mean, I like sessions like this, you know, mm-hmm. we just talk informally. But um, it's all over to you now, Surya. Now, to touch a little more on the modern political climate in Trinidad and the Guyanas, I'll center in on Guyana specifically. But similarities exist in the political history of Suriname and Trinidad and Tobago, where the country's complex racial histories have fueled political conflict. Fearing more towards Guyana, we'll briefly explore a very interesting and unique political history. In large part, the story of Guyana's politics post-independence is the story of two men, Forbes Burnham and Chetty Jagan. On the 1st of January 1950, the two joined forces to co-found the People's Progressive Party, or the PPP, as a merger of the existing British Guiana Labour Party. The party attracted a diverse array of intellectuals from all over Guyana, and in its founding was truly a reflection of the ethnic diaspora in Guyana. The newly formed PPP gained a majority in the first election with universal suffrage, and they went on to pass the Historic Labor Relations Act, which was modeled on the American legislation of the Wagner Act, supporting workers' rights to collectively bargain and form labor unions. The leftist nature of the party concerned the British, who sent troops into the territory in 1953, suspending the constitution of British Guyana. Burnham and Jagan traveled together to London to protest the decision. They were not met with much success, however. They even went to the newly formed Indian government to seek support, but they were turned away there too. Upon their return, two years later, at a conference in the capital city of Georgetown, the People's Progressive Party split, with Chetty Jagan continuing to lead the PPP, and Forbes Burnham going on to form the People's National Congress, or the PNC. Jagan's policies leaned more in a socialist domestic direction, whereas Burnham's policies were more moderate. This split worsened existing racial tensions between Afro-Guyanese and Indo-Guyanese people, with Afro-Guyanese people voting for the PNC and Indo-Guyanese people voting for PPP. This divisive distinction still holds true today for the most part. Now, this is where things get really interesting. The more you listen to Radio Resistance, the more you'll become familiarized with the following few phrases I'm about to iterate. Here we go. According to declassified documents, in the early 1960s, the U.S. government became increasingly involved in influencing Guyana's politics due to the belief that Jagan's PPP government was harboring communist ideologies, given his ties with Cuba and the Soviet Union. I think you can guess whose side the U.S. was on in this one. Yep, Forbes Burnham even visited the White House in 1962 to discuss political strategy with then-President John F. Kennedy. Their talks led to an agreement to interfere in the 1964 elections in Guyana by promoting a proportional representation system and teaming up with the third-party leader, Pita de Aguiar, of the United Force. Leading up to the 1964 election, there was widespread violence in the streets of Guyana, which led to nearly 200 murders and the displacement of 2,600 families, When the election results came in, Jagan had won the highest percentage of the vote with 41%, but the PPP's majority was gone. Burnham had successfully formed a coalition with the United Force to become the Prime Minister of Guyana. Now what happened next is slightly surprising. Originally, Burnham's American-supported plans were working, with the development of the Caribbean Free Trade Association in collaboration with Errol Barrow, Prime Minister of the Bahamas. But later on, in his political career, he began to adopt socialist policies, even forming ties with the Soviet Union and North Korea. 
His policies resulted in the migration of many skilled workers who left Guyana for the U.S. and Canada. Burnham remained in power, mostly through voter fraud, until his death in 1985. Throughout his reign, he was responsible for multiple human rights violations, involvement in the infamous Jonestown Massacre, and the massive accrual of debt in Guyana. In 1992, the PPP won the general elections. Chetty Jagan came into power as a more moderate democratic socialist instead of a Marxist-Leninist. During his time, Jagan spearheaded multiple national infrastructure projects, such as irrigation and drainage projects, health and education investment, along with electricity generation, all while trying to improve trade with the Americas. He advocated for a new global human order, which aimed to eradicate poverty and reduce inequality. Policies in this initiative included debt relief, a pollution tax, and cuts in arms spending, none of which gained adequate support when he proposed in front of the United Nations in 1995, even though many of his policies were considerably ahead of their time and have now been introduced again in the United Nations. Guyana's political history is complicated and divided, but it has deep implications toward Guyana's future. As Dr. Rupnarin mentioned earlier in this interview, ExxonMobil has recently found oil in Guyana. It has led to the formation of the Greater Guyana Initiative to come up with a sort of planning proposal for the funds that this amount of oil will bring to the country. The initiative has the five focus areas, which are Guyanan priorities, community priorities, sustainability, value, and management and results. Currently, much of the workers on offshore wells in Guyana are manned by foreign experts and employees, and much of the spoils have not yet been seen by the people. Nonetheless, some experts believe that revenue possibilities from this oil presence could parallel that of the Gulf states. Only time will tell whether these new developments will bring prosperity to Guyana or further exacerbate tensions and inequality in the country. So that's all for me. I want to thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Radio Resistance. Join us next week as we discover the music history of Trinidad and the Guyanas. We'll learn about the music genres that constitute a true fusion of cultures and influences in the regions, and I hope it will give you even more insight and appreciation towards this extremely unique area. This has been your host, Sir Yavir, a.k.a. DJ Sunray. As always, thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next time on... Radio Resistance.